0: PFK in Los Angeles, this is Living in the USA. I'm John Wiener, talking about politics, thinking about the left. Later in the show, is Omicron the kinder, gentler COVID virus we've been waiting for? One we can live with? Mike Davis says there are some problems with that view. Also, How the Legacy of Slavery Has Shaped American Politics and Society Today, that's the subject of the 1619 Project, which began as a special issue of the New York Times Magazine on the 400th anniversary of the first enslaved Africans arriving in America. The idea quickly became the focus of challenge and then Republican attack. Now the 1619 Project has published a book, for comment on that, we will turn to one of the contributors, Martha Jones. She's an award winning historian at Johns Hopkins who writes about how Black Americans have shaped democracy in the United States. First up, today's political update with Harold Meyerson. Of course, he's editor at large of the American Prospect. Hi, Harold. Hi, John. Well, the big thing people are worrying about right now is inflation. We've just learned that inflation in 2021 was the highest it's been in 40 years. Republicans say it's Joe Biden's fault and this is no time to be launching huge new government spending programs like Biden's Build Back Better. What do you say?
1: Uh, I say it's a number of things, but mainly the pandemic and the effect it's had on uh, already screwed up supply chains that so much of what Americans buy uh, and even the machinery with which uh, they make things here uh, uh, comes from abroad on, uh, in, in, uh, in, on ships that are owned by a handful of companies. They get to uh, ports that uh, need massive public investment to be more functional Uh, They are then delivered by trucks whose drivers are paid so low that the annual turnover rate of long-haul truck drivers is 94%, and everything adds up to things being both slow and more costly. Uh, It's worth pointing out that Biden uh, over the last week has called out the meat industry where there's a bottleneck of, uh, of middlemen. I don't know what the gender neutral term for middlemen is. Uh, middlemen that have been hiking prices. And after he called them out, the price hikes really abated. So there's something the president can do about this, uh, d- dealing with issues of concentration, monopoly control, and what have you. Um, but uh, far from it being The government uh, being uh, too generous, I think the government needs to uh, clamp down on the kind of uh, uh, situations that uh, have caused the price hikes. And it's particularly apparent in oil. We have a smart piece I just edited for the next issue of the American Prospect, which deals entirely with what's wrong with the supply chain. And the piece is about the oil industry. And one of the.
0: Let me just say. Sure. In my neighborhood of West Los Angeles, gas now costs five dollars a gallon. Yeah. Is that uh, Joe Biden's fault? No. Uh, among among the things this article points out
1: is that there was a major shift in domestic oil production in in twenty twenty one. Up to now, the fracking industry, which is really has really functioned as kind of a, an anchor to oil prices, whenever the OPEC price uh, went up. Uh, frackers said, "Okay, this is uh, our point to uh, uh, enter the market with uh, lower priced uh, oil and gas," and and they did uh, up until last year. Then they noted and heard from all kinds of investors who really control much of the economy that they were paying too much attention to production and not enough attention to profit. So they uh, cut off a lot of that spigot, which I suppose is environmentally good. But uh, it also had the effect of putting profit over production. And uh, when you put profit over production, you put prices higher. In, in many ways, the price of fossil fuel, despite, you know, the advent of sustainable green technologies, the price of fossil fuel still is probably, you know, a dominant factor in the cost of living. It, it uh, affects all modes of transportation and uh, uh, much else. So I I would say that that is one of the main sources of the rise in inflation.
0: Chuck Schumer said, if you want to fight inflation, support Build Back Better. Are there specific ways that that argument makes sense? Sure. It makes sense in
1: reducing the cost of living in many particulars. One thing, if if, uh, Medicare is allowed to negotiate for drug prices, that would be a huge cost saving uh, for people who use prescription drugs, which is darn near everybody. And not just Medicare recipients, because once the prices are lowered for them, it's going to be hard to sustain the prices for people who are only 64 and a half. Uh, and not 65. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Uh, So that's one particular. Another particular in uh, in Build Back Better, in reducing what people have to pay out of pocket, would be the thing that Joe Manchin objects to, uh, the child tax credit. Another would be more affordable child care and universal pre-K, which would uh, uh, greatly reduce what parents of young kids have to shell out to take care of their young kids. So there are a lot of things. There's some things in the original proposal that had dropped out even before Joe Manchin cleared his throat, which he does a lot, such as Free Community College. The Biden program would greatly reduce tens of millions of Americans' very major out-of-out-of-pocket expenses. And it also is also a housing component, an affordable housing component in the bill and as uh people in your neighborhood john and across california and other parts of the nation know uh the price of housing uh in uh much of the country has just uh, gone through gone through the ceiling and uh, uh you know it will take massive in in many ways massive public investment in affordable housing to lessen the the fill up housing rate and uh bring housing costs back down again
0: seems like uh these are all important things to do, but they're not going to have the kind of immediate effect that will make voters happier in the fall campaign. No,
1: no. Uh, And, you know, that's a good thing and a bad thing. It's a good thing only in that you don't want the government to address this uh, by uh, inducing a recession. The last time we had serious inflation, which was the last years of the Carter administration and the first year's of the Reagan administration, uh, the Federal Reserve, under the leadership of Paul Volcker, dealt with it by raising interest rates uh, tremendously, way up into the teens, which had the unfortunate effect, really, of wiping out uh, Midwestern manufacturing, uh, something from <laughs> which we have never recovered. Uh, and it raised unemployment to 10.8%, which is still the highest it's been since the Great Depression. So we hear that, you know, uh, the Fed probably is now going to raise interest rates, but presumably nothing like that. Uh, So uh, uh, the other things that we talked about, um, some of them, if the bill were enacted, could relieve people's out-of-pocket expenses fairly quickly, others not, others not. Certainly getting up, let's say universal pre-K is a multi-year project requiring, you know, in some ways construction of more classrooms, hiring of more teachers, training of more teachers to deal with three, years old, three, four, and five-year-olds, et cetera. So some of it is long-term. Uh, some of it that actually provides money in your pocket uh, is is less
0: long-term. Second big topic that people are worrying about this week, war, war with Russia over Ukraine. We read every day in the paper about how Putin has thousands of troops massed on three sides of Ukraine and helicopters ready to invade. We know he's always wanted Ukraine back inside the old Russian empire borders and and to prevent Ukraine from becoming part of NATO. Is Putin crazy to be concerned about NATO expanding to uh, include Ukraine?
1: Well, there's really two issues here. One is
0: that Uh, Putin,
1: in the best of all possible worlds, probably would want Ukraine under any set of circumstances, but he doesn't live in the best of all possible worlds. That gets us to the NATO expansion issue. And clearly, he does not want NATO expanded into Ukraine. And I suspect, actually, if you ask NATO member countries if they wanted NATO expanded into (laughs) Ukraine, they would say no as well. Um, you know, it would, it would be a major cost to have a country with a border with Russia that long uh, stocked by, uh, by NATO. It would be a long-term expensive project, you know, and there's an interesting question here, a historic question. NATO was formed around 1947, 48, 49, in response to the formation of the Warsaw Pact, which was uh, an alliance of the Soviet Union under Joseph Stalin and all the countries which had been occupied and were still occupied by uh, Soviet troops uh, the, in the course of World War II. And uh, if I
0: could just inject here a historical note, this was all based on looking backwards at Russia's experience of World War II. And World Russia, War I. And World <laughs> War I. Russia's, yeah. Germany has invaded rolled through Eastern Europe with very little resistance and attacked Russia. The Warsaw Pact uh, uh, allowed Russia to station its troops, closer to the borders of Germany, thus seeking to protect itself by fighting the next war uh, in Eastern Europe instead of inside Russia. That's certainly logical from a kind of geopolitical strategy point of view. Yeah,
1: two things, and and stationing troops inside East Germany, which they controlled as well. Yes. And, you know, but to, to take your point one step further, it is likely that almost any Russian government that found itself in the position of the Soviet Union in May 1945, in which it had already occupied all those countries, would be loath to, in essence, give them up for the very reason you just cited. So anyway, NATO was an alliance essentially of Western democracies uh, opposed to the Warsaw Pact and the Soviet Union. And certainly there were ideological grounds for that. uh, But over the years, the ideological profile of NATO has become largely indistinct. And this is in many ways because uh, under uh, the the second administration of Bill Clinton, uh, the United States pushed NATO to expand into all of the Eastern European countries, which were no longer communist. Uh, and they included all of them except Russia. Uh, and, and... Countries that, in the two major countries that have been part of the Soviet Union, bordering on the Soviet Union, Belarus and, and Ukraine. Um, that means we are allied against whatever we're allied against uh, with countries like Hungary, which is the model, according to Tucker Carlson, for uh, a Trumpian authoritarian regime here. We are allied with Poland, um, which uh, is getting, you know, gets repeatedly condemned by the European Union. For its undemocratic practices, indeed, the European Union is actually now cutting off its subsidies to Hungary. Um, so we have an ideological, dis, um, indistinct alliance, uh, which is kind of hanging around from the Cold War. Uh, and you know, in 1997, when NATO expanded eastward, um, this this upset actually most of the Russian political elite, regardless of what political tendency they were in, Putin was not the ruler of Russia at that point. Um, it actually uh, also got the opposition of some pretty uh, hawkish former Cold Warriors in the United States saying this is uh, this is pointless and could be, be viewed by Russia as a threat. People like Paul Nitze, who was uh, one of the ultimate defense hawks during the Cold War. But nonetheless, that's the state of affairs, and uh, it's a state of affairs that was then inherited by George W. Bush, Barack Obama, Donald Trump, and now Joe Biden. Uh, they've got this Verschluggener Alliance, uh, which was formed to address what was at once you know, a non-existent other ideological alliance. Um, and there it is. And uh, Biden is somewhat constrained by the fact that he took so much heat for the... Afghan withdrawal and the manner of the Afghan withdrawal, that he doesn't want to appear weak. You know, this is the standard position of the Democrats vis-a-vis Republicans in international affairs. We don't want to appear weak.
0: I think this um, goes back, shall we trace it back to at least to Harry Truman?
1: Yeah, at least to, uh, who was, of course, the president whose advocacy led to the formation of NATO. Uh, but it, it did not include the far right position, which was the military rollback as it was called then of uh, Eastern European nations. Uh, so uh, now uh, we, we're kind of stuck. Uh, Putin is making all kinds of threats. Clearly you would not want uh, the kind of Russian autocracy that exists to expand into Ukraine on the one hand. On the other hand, um, uh, you know, Short of that, uh, I don't think Western powers really want to uh, be stuck defend, you know, uh, spending a lot of money on Ukraine. And certainly, you do not want a war, for God's sakes, between Russia and the United States. And so, uh, one must hope that some kind of modus vivendi is worked out. This is kind of a, a, an issue in which, uh, you know, there's no such thing as a perfect solution because the problem itself is so inherently messy, but there certainly are solutions short of war.
0: Now for some better news. Let's talk about the state of California, the largest state in the United States, the state who's uh, with a $3 trillion uh, gross state product. If California were a sovereign nation, it would be the fifth largest economy in the world, bigger than the UK, just behind Germany. What? and it's completely controlled by Democrats. So what can Democrats do in such a wealthy uh, and populous and happy state? Well, one thing they can do is provide universal health insurance. The California Assembly has a new bill aiming to create single payer healthcare in California. This would be a system called CalCare, It would make California the first state in the nation to have single payer in a single state it would guarantee not just medical, but dental uh, uh, eye care uh, and long-term care for everybody in California. You don't have to be old. You don't have to be a citizen. You don't have to be poor. Wow.
1: Wow, indeed. And uh, part of the reason for this is not simply the relative liberalism of California's elected officials, But the fact that uh, since Pat Brown became governor in 1959, the state has had highly progressive taxation, and the state has made it more progressive over the subsequent decades, and the state is home to the wealthiest uh, tech executives and whatnot, meaning that for the last several years, California has had budget surpluses this year, I think it's somewhere between 30 and $40 billion budget surplus. Last year, it was close to $70 billion surplus. So when you get that kind of money, what is only hypothetically possible elsewhere, and elsewhere includes, unfortunately, Washington, D.C. and the nation's capital, uh, becomes actually possible in California. Now, Gavin Newsom, when he was running for governor the first time in uh, 2018, Um, may not have paid attention to what he himself was saying, but what he said was that he supported universal single-payer health care. And uh, there's no doubt that the California Nurses Association will remind him of that. (laughs) That is why they endorsed him uh, in the primary uh, in 2018. Um, And, you know, I think there's probably uh, enough support in the legislature, not two-thirds support, but enough support, you know, that these things could get a majority. And that, of course, would be huge, not just for California, but for the entire United States.
0: And we can't let you go without this week's Joe Manchin update. Uh, Joe Biden gave a passionate speech in Atlanta uh, this week about the necessity of changing the filibuster to pass voting rights legislation, clearly aimed uh, at Joe Manchin. And maybe even more significant, the United Mine Workers uh, has made public their support for build back better uh and uh we ha- Joe Manchin has been saying he's doing all this to in uh, on behalf of the mine the coal miners of West Virginia why do the united mine workers support build back better
1: because build back better includes uh, what's called just transition funds uh for the mine workers uh it understands uh as has previously been the case, not very often, unfortunately, but it understands that this kind of change only really works politically and for the people affected if there is serious uh, remediation for the people who who lose their jobs. And that doesn't mean if you're being paid $35 an hour uh, as a mine worker, as a unionized mine worker, uh, that working for fifteen dollars an hour installing so- solar panels is adequate remediation. Same goes, I should say, also for oil refinery workers in Los Angeles. Uh, they have the similar concerns. So uh, that's in the bill, uh, but Joe Manchin uh, seems either not to be aware of it or doesn't really care. He's siding more with the mine owners, who clearly, you know, don't want. Uh, the this transition to uh, a, a green economy uh, uh, rather than siding with the mine workers who have supported him in every uh, single election campaign he has ever waged.
0: The debate on changing the filibuster rules will start next Monday. Uh, Martin Luther King's birthday. We'll be talking to you a couple of days after that, I hope, to see uh, how it's going. <laughs> yeah. Any, do you have any... Uh, predictions
1: well uh since Manton and christen uh, cinema seem to think that the filibuster is divinely ordained i am not wildly optimistic
0: harold myerson he's not wildly optimistic read him at prospect.org thank you harold always great to have you on the show and always great to be here john <laughs> It's the same old story. This is Living in the USA, and I'm John Weiner talking about politics, thinking about the left. The Omicron variant of the COVID virus is spreading like wildfire. The world is averaging nearly 1.5 million new cases every day this week, and that's twice as many as a week ago. But this variant is notably less lethal. People are significantly less likely to be hospitalized and die from it. So... Is it the kinder and gentler COVID we've been waiting for? For comment, we turn to Mike Davis. Of course, he's written many books, including The Monster at Our Door, The Global Threat of Avian Flu, published in 2005, and The Monster Enters, COVID-19, Avian Flu, and the Plagues of Capitalism, published in 2020. And of course, he's written many updates on covid for thenationcom where he's a contributing editor. We reached him today at home in San Diego. Hi, Mike. Hi, John. One strategy of viruses for survival is to become kinder and gentler and not kill their hosts. And it seems like Omicron is doing just that. The virologists call this attenuation. And that's the solution for people who won't get vaccinated. They'll get Omicron. They're most likely they'll survive and develop antibodies and that will make their future cases less severe. And then the original Fox News argument, it's just like the flu, will become finally true. COVID will be with us, but at an acceptable level, we could get COVID booster shots along with our annual flu shots. Life will return to normal starting sometime after Omicron peaks, which will probably be this month. Do you agree with this optimistic assessment?
2: No, not really.
0: To begin with, I
2: think we all have had
0: to recognize
2: that coronaviruses, the SARS-2 virus, is full of tricks and surprises, and it's evolving in a huge uh, evolutionary space, given it's three times as transmissible as uh, the Delta variant. And it will burn its way through entire new populations, which have been unvaccinated. You know, I mean, look at the hospitals. The ICUs are overwhelmed. A week ago, there still a 1,000 Americans dying every day from COVID. So Omicron is not like idiots such as Marco Rubio claim, you know, no worse than a cold. And even the flu analogy, well, the flu kills 40,000, 50,000 people a year and seems to be on the brink of evolving uh, new variants, avian variants that could be as deadly as the 1918 uh, Spanish flu. But for all that, yes, that uh, does seem to represent a transition to reduce virulence. And this accords with the classical paradigm more than a century ago, the pioneering American bacteriologist Theobald Smith argued, and this is really incredibly in advance of his times, that the most virulent diseases were new diseases. That is, they had jumped over from another species, or they were recombinations of different variants of some virus, or for that matter, uh, bacteria. Now, the problem with being super virulent as you kill off your host, is you reduce your own reproductive chances. Fewer uh, viruses are are transmitted. So this could lead even to the extinction of the microparasite itself. And there are many uh, examples of that. The incredibly dangerous outbreak of pneumonic plague, for instance, during the construction of a railroad in Manchuria in 1912. And it killed like 90% of the people who got it and disappeared simply because it wiped out towns full of railroad workers. But anyway, Smith went on to say that evolutionary theory would predict that a competitive advantage would be given to those strains that traded off virulence for transmissibility. A one-sided destructive onslaught would evolve into more stable and symbiotic relationship between the host and the parasite. And he called this the law of declining virulence. And with many refinements, it remains one of the fundamental paradigms of disease ecology. So it's not surprising that so many experts believe that the mutations, the surprising number of mutations, that it produced Omicron are further proof of Smith's Law. Unlike the original March viruses and then its various successors, Alpha, Beta, Gamma, and Delta, Omicron targets not the lower respiratory system, the lungs, but the upper respiratory system where it is most transmissible through sneezing and coughing and so on. And although it overwhelms much of the immunity produced by previous uh, exposures, uh, people who contracted uh, an earlier variant and those people who are who are vaccinated, the T cells which are mobilized through the vaccinations seem to be doing a very good job of keeping it out of the lower respiratory tract, which has produced the devastating results, particularly in senior citizens, immune compromised people, and also produced
0: long COVID. Long COVID, to me, is the scariest thing about the new variant of disease. What do we know about uh, Omicron and long COVID? What kind of progress has medical science made in understanding and treating long COVID?
2: Not very much. And I, I speak only as someone who, you know, regularly peruses the Leading medical journals and their, their COVID websites, but it's far too early to say that we know have any kind of comprehensive idea of Omicron. We know that it is, you know, less lethal, more transmissible, and mainly uh, affects the upper respiratory tract. Let me just quote from an article that appeared a few days ago in the British Medical Journal, one of the world's leading medical journals. The author says, even if Omicron does cause less severe disease, its infection rate could still have devastating consequences. Tim Spector, professor of genetic epidemiology at King's College London, said, quote, if numbers skyrocket, it doesn't matter if the percentage of people being hospitalized or dying remains low, because it's about volume, not percentages the higher rate of transmission, even in the vaccinated, could have devastating consequences and hundreds of people could continue to die every week. And as Smith himself so long ago recognized, a stabilizing trade-off between virulence and transmission, host and parasite, doesn't mean that an infection will become benign. Virulence may decline, but only to a moderately lower level. Darwinian logic suggests that the ideal equilibrium from the standpoint of the micropathogen might be a serious but not fatal infection that lasted for more than a week, thus optimizing the production of the virus. But on the other hand, there are great plagues that haven't shown any sign of the law of declining you know, virulence. Tuberculosis smallpox, and you might put AIDS in the same category. And coronaviruses, which for so long, for generations, scientists had taken to be very, very benign threats, most to to humans. We now know that there's, you know, extraordinary reservoir of different variants, different kinds of coronaviruses, uh, particularly in bat populations. And the environmental and the socioeconomic conditions that have promoted the emergence of new diseases and transfer of viruses from these wild reservoirs into human population, all that remains in place. This is why, you know, we have to recognize that we're not just living through a pandemic, which will assume a, a mild, mild form, and then we forget about it. We're living in an age of pandemics, and there's a long line, almost like planes uh, <laughs> lined up to land at an airport, possible new uh, pathogens,
0: which could be as deadly, or as transmissible as coronavirus. Well, it's my job here to present the more optimistic and cheerful side of things. So I want to just take a step back and look at how nearly miraculous it was that vaccines were developed so quickly, at least two of which... Are proven to be extremely effective in preventing serious uh, illness and and death uh, from COVID. This makes a lot of people very optimistic that in the future biotech will be able to solve all the kinds of problems that you're talking about, and that uh, science really does work. But is science applied? I mean, you may have the
2: you know the research, the new technology, but. Will it become commonly available? Will it be available only to the very rich and not to the poor? And of course, one of the great scandals of the development of the two messenger RNA vaccines that have proven so effective has been the fact that Moderna was not only developed largely in public universities, but it got $2.5 billion from the federal government without a counterpart sharing you know, in the profits of it. I mean, it was an enormous giveaway. You know, I thank God that I, you know, have had three Moderna shots. But the lack of any kind of real antitrust consciousness over this whole process. And the truth is that big pharma, which has to be bribed and subsidized and given public research to produce these vaccines, has become a major obstacle to the translation of revolutionary breakthroughs and molecular design and so on into effective medicine for the people, one of my greatest disappointments is how little progressives have been able to influence the debates about the pandemic and about the role of different parts of the private sector, including these uh, private equity-controlled nursing home chains, which, you know, which... Thousands, tens of thousands of elderly people died unnecessarily. I mean, the writers almost entirely captured this debate. The nurses, obviously, you know, have been out there robustly picketing and reminding us that a lot of the conditions that were so catastrophic in early uh, 2020 still exist. In fact, in I think about nine days, Nurses United is going to have a national action because the Biden administration, people were incredulous about this, isn't renewing the emergency safeguards that it had applied after the inauguration. So nurses are still short of N95 quality masks, things like isolation and the number of patients per nurse and so on. This remains a a walking disaster for healthcare workers. And I suppose most of all, uh, the failure has been that you would have thought in a health crisis of of, of this scale, which has produced so much devastation to to family incomes, that Medicare for All would really have taken off and become uh, a, a crusade. And there are obviously examples where you've had community labor coalitions support groups for nurses local actions but basically everything's been bottled up in the omnibus bill instead of becoming a, a cause in you know the streets including you know national protests that could in some way steal the issue from the far right and its kind of murderous homicidal attitudes
0: toward uh, the pandemic So we've been talking here mostly about the United States, but of course, you've talked about the space for mutation of viruses that the virus finds outside the United States in the billions of people who live in the less developed world. That also needs to be a priority for for Biden and for the developed world. Well,
2: yes. I mean, what 2020 exposed was the utter failure of the World Health Organization, of the European Union, basically of almost every kind of transnational organization, apart from medical research community itself, which acted with, you know, astonishing solidarity. Chinese researchers in in particular were extraordinary, the speed at which they conveyed information and data to the researchers. But otherwise, you know, it's been every nation for itself. It's been the rich hoarding the vaccines, and in this in an environment where fundamental community healthcare, basic medicine is still lacking for large part, a large minority of human beings. And the question is whether both in the United States domestically and internationally, whether this pandemic leads to any improvements in basic healthcare and preventative uh, medicine And the scientific miracles may be there, but the obstacles to delivering this to people are enormous. And in fact, you have to conclude that actually uh, the pandemic in some ways wrecked large parts of primary care. I mean, the number of rural hospitals that have closed, the number of people who haven't been able to get lifeline procedures, whether that's chemotherapy or operations, the number of people who now, with the expiration of the original Biden subsidies and protections, will face you know, enormous dilemmas, unable to afford or access a lot of the medicine. So everything that was wrong with healthcare in the U.S. and with the relationship between world health establishment and poor people, All this has been exacerbated and gotten much, much worse. It should have been the duty of progressives to take the offensive on on these questions. And it leads me to wonder, and I'm almost hesitant to say this, but whether the omnibus Build Back Better bill was not a mistake because... Given the balance of power, you know, within Congress, I mean, if the election had turned out into a great democratic victory, which it wasn't, then maybe it made most sense to have a comprehensive bill. But in the existing situation, the health care reform and Medicare for all has kind
0: of ended up on the back burner. Mike Davis, he's the author of, among other things, The Monster Enters, COVID-19, Avian Flu, and the Plagues of Capitalism. Thanks, Mike. We needed this. Thank you, John. It's the same old story. This is Living in the USA, and I'm John Weiner talking about politics, thinking about the left. We want to talk about how the legacy of slavery has shaped American politics and society today. That's the subject of the 1619 Project. You may remember it began as a special issue of the New York Times Magazine on the 400th anniversary of the first enslaved Africans arriving in America, in Virginia. The idea quickly became the focus of challenge and then of attack as Senator Tom Cotton of Arkansas introduced a bill in Congress. He called it the Saving American History Act, which would prohibit federal funds from being made available to teach the 1619 Project curriculum in schools. And then President Donald Trump denounced the 1619 Project as, quote, toxic propaganda and appointed a commission to promote what he called patriotic education, focused on the legacy of 1776. Now the 1619 Project has published a book, expanding the original 10 essays to 19, and the new book also includes more poetry and fiction and some wonderful photography. The project was created by Nicole Hannah-Jones, an award-winning journalist and recipient of a MacArthur Genius Grant, She's also the lead editor of the new book, published this week, which is called The 1619 Project, A New Origin Story. For more on that, we turn to one of the contributors to the new book, Martha Jones. She's an award-winning historian who writes about how Black Americans have shaped democracy in the United States. She's professor of history at Johns Hopkins, author of the books Birthright Citizens, A History of Race and Rights in Antebellum America and more recently, Vanguard, How Black Women Broke Barriers, Won the Vote, and Insisted on Equality for All. She's written for the New York Times, the Atlantic, the Washington Post, and other places. We reached her today in Baltimore. Martha Jones, welcome to the program.
3: Thanks very much for having me.
0: Well, if we think of the origins of the United States lying not in 1776, not with the Declaration of Independence and the Revolution, but rather in the arrival of the first enslaved Africans in Virginia, 150 years before that in 1619. What does that change in our understanding of American history?
3: Part of how I understand the 1619 Project is precisely a grand thought experiment, um, in part contributed to by historians, but also including journalists and many creative writers, um, all of which explore what it means to recenter U.S. history around the experiences, the perspectives, and the profound troubles of people of African descent in North America. Well,
0: the 1619 Project is not just a big book of essays, it's also a set of educational materials for schools put together not by the New York Times, uh, but by the Pulitzer Center. And the materials are intended, they insists to supplement, not replace, the standard history and social studies uh, curriculums. Uh, Thousands of teachers in all 50 states are now using the 1619 Project. This, of course, was the target of Tom Cotton's bill, which I'm happy to say died in Congress. But then 27 state legislatures controlled by Republicans have introduced similar legislation proposing to ban the teaching of what they call divisive concepts. What do you think about teaching what they call divisive concepts in high schools?
3: You know, I um, have the, the honor, um, not infrequently, to talk with both K through 12 educators and their students. And what I hear is not um, a fear or a resistance. What I hear from young people in particular is, why have you kept this history from us so long and um, that is a hard and humbling question i think for those of us who are in the business of history but it is one that i think um, poses a uh an urgent Challenge to us from educators. What I hear is, why didn't I learn this in school? And here is a moment to remember that many of us received educations that bear the mark of American apartheid, that bear the mark of Jim Crow um, in our textbooks, in our curriculum, and more. And so here I think um, we have this opportunity to extend a kind of compassion to all of us, and I include myself among those, who were just not educated um, in the ways that we recognize we want and need to have been in the 21st century. And so it is a tragedy to imagine that um, state censorship is going to keep these materials out of classrooms. But of course, the work of the Pulitzer Center um, and more um, is working to make sure that those materials continue to be accessible, even if it is not through the auspices of public school systems.
0: Well, probably the part of the 1619 Project that's been debated the most among historians has been about 1776 and the American Revolution, the ways in which the fight for American independence from Britain was also a fight to preserve slavery for black people. That's a shocking idea to a lot of people, but it's something that historians have been studying and debating for a while now. What do you think the debate tells us about where we are now when it comes to teaching, researching, and writing about the founding?
3: I think there are two things to say about that. The first is that the 21st century is not the first time in which this country has debated um, the profound question of our origins. It's not the first time as a nation we've debated um, how to think about um, the fact and the legacies of slavery and anti-Black racism. So we are in the latest chapter, if you will, in a longer debate And at the same time, that debate, the one we're in today, is unfolding in a political context in which history um, is being used as political fodder, um, which is to say um, very quickly we get... quite a distance from the archives, from the historiography, the kinds of things that you and I very much root our work in. And we understand that once again, history becomes a tool, it becomes an implement for um, political debate. And in this moment, I think it's a debate precisely over who should steer this nation's future, what sorts of ideas should animate it. And we see that as we tussle over whose history is the history. Of course, there isn't ever a well-settled answer to that sort of question at all. That's a political question, not a historian's question.
0: Part of the debate over the 1619 Project has been about the place of slavery in the Constitution. The word slavery never appears in the Constitution. That took a lot of work by anti-slavery delegates, but slavery is there nevertheless in several places
3: and we're aware right that the drafters of that constitution are self-conscious in their um, uh, omission of the term slave or slavery. There are many euphemisms when we teach the Constitution that it's necessary to unpack. Um, but of course, we recognize that fugitive slave um, provisions, um, the three-fifths clause, um, that there are aspects of this Constitution that are admit how um, aware and how much consideration the, found, the framers are giving to the issue of
0: slavery. Uh, Yes, just to spell that out a bit, the Founding Fathers included a clause in the Constitution that slaves who escaped to free states, fugitives, had to be sent back to the South if captured in the North. This made slavery a national institution. The Founding Fathers also put into the Constitution a provision that the slave trade could continue for 20 more years They called it the importation of persons. Congress then banned the slave trade in 1807. And, of course, the Three-Fifths Clause, they also agreed that slaves could be counted for the purposes of apportionments of seats to the House of Representatives.
3: At the same time, um, I'm a legal historian who has to remind my students that even a document as consequential as a constitution is only a text until the contests um, in lived experience animate it. And so when I teach the constitution, I teach it alongside uh, figures like Elizabeth Freeman, Enslaved in Western Massachusetts in the revolutionary era, who will use the Massachusetts state constitution to not only challenge her own enslavement, but the institution of slavery in the state of Massachusetts. There is the history of the constitution um, when, in that example, an enslaved woman comes to a court and asks for an interpretation um, that transforms in her own life. But the future of slavery in the state of Massachusetts, that is um, the Constitution as we know it as a living document.
0: Well, your work asks questions about race and racism in the Constitution. Tell us about that.
3: One of the questions um, that I've tried to answer is um, how have Black Americans figured before the Constitution when it comes to the question of citizenship? And one of the things um, good students of the the Constitution know is that it is almost silent about who, in fact, is a citizen of the United States. There are references to citizens, yes, in the document, but never is there a definition. And that lapse. That chasm really in the Constitution means that black Americans, even those who have um, managed to free themselves from the bonds of enslavement, even those folks are faced with a dilemma because the Constitution is unclear about where they stand. You
0: write about black activists who fought for citizenship in antebellum America.
3: What was their argument? There are a couple of arguments. Um, and these are folks who are really inventing, right? The notion of citizenship in real time. They read the text of the Constitution and they discover, for example, that the president of the United States must be a natural born citizen of the United States. And they say, I think reasonably, they argue if the president is a national, natural born citizen, there must be such a category. And Why aren't we also natural born citizens? There's no color line in the constitution, they importantly point out. At the same time, black Americans are going to um, speak importantly about their labor, um, much of it uncompensated and unrequited um, in the early United States as another claim to citizenship, another theory of what citizenship might be in the U.S. Ultimately, they fix on the idea of birthright. Something familiar to us, even as 21st century Americans, and they begin to promote this notion that birth in the United States connotes citizenship in the United States, and they will press for many decades on this idea um, until finally the 14th Amendment becomes part of the Constitution in 1868. Wow, we just we just we just went through a, a, a whole swath of time, but um, I hope the point is clear. So
0: the 14th Amendment established birthright citizenship. 150 years later, Donald Trump uh, won the presidential election, and he said he wanted to end birthright citizenship. He said it was, quote, frankly ridiculous, close quote. So in the last four or five years, we've had a new debate about what black Americans brought to the Constitution after the Civil War. Trump thought maybe he could issue an executive order that would end birthright citizenship. That didn't work.
3: President Trump um, never attempts the executive order that would abrogate the 14th Amendment, so we'll never know how that would have gone. But that doesn't mean that um, he and members of Congress did not continue to think concertedly about this question. And there has been in Congress um, each year since 2009 proposed um, what is called the Birthright Citizenship Act, which would look to use the power of Congress to constrain the 14th amendment and in its interpretation and to deprive those children born in the United States of non-citizen parents deprive them of birthright citizenships privileges. I would say that that debate is not closed, even as the Trump administration is behind us. And when we return to policy around immigration, um, I expect that birthright citizenship will still be a uh, question on the table.
0: Well, let's talk about the rest of the book. There's these key chapters on 1619 as the beginning, and 1776, and the Constitution of 1789. There's your work about how black Americans won birthright citizenship rights after the Civil War and the 14th Amendment. What other chapters of the book did you think were especially notable or or significant or, or original?
3: I think one of the chapters that might surprise readers in a welcome sense is that by historian Taya Miles, um, titled "Dispossession." Here, uh, Miles brings to the readers of the sixteen nineteen project her long-standing intervention, which is one that it insists on how Native history and African-American history are profoundly intertwined. Um, And here she takes us through everything from the um, intertwined issues of land dispossession um, and the extension and the the, um, longevity of slavery and the reliance upon enslaved labor to develop and cultivate that land that Native people have been dispossessed from. But she also reminds us as Native Americans face dispossession, um, there are those among them who, under the moniker of civilizing Take up the holding of people of African descent as slaves um, in early America. So these are chapters that remind us that our histories aren't silos. But Miles makes the point, of course, that until today, the question of land, of dispossession, of who is a citizen, not only of the United States, but of sovereign native nations, um, are live questions and are challenged by the um, persistence of anti-Black racism. And so her chapter, for me, speaks to a lesser-known chapter in the past, but also to really pertinent questions in our present.
0: So now we have this new book by the 1619 Project. For historians, it's likely to lead to new challenges, new debates. Do you think that more conflict and strife around the central issues of American history is something to be regretted? Should we try to avoid that? Is a new consensus our goal here?
3: It's not my goal, (laughs) And, and I'm someone who strives in a way to recognize not only Um, the ways in which debate is useful, productive, essential, I would argue, for producing better history. But as important, it opens our eyes to the important degree to which conflict is the story of American democracy. And when we, as the 1619 Project has done so powerfully, place, for example, Black Americans at the center of our narratives it is possible to gloss American history as the history of um, consensus or the history of um, a Whiggish arc of progress. Um, and that, to me, is the essence of American democracy, which means, um, should we persist, um, we will do so through the kind of contest, through the kind of strife, through the kind of disagreement that has always Uh, characterize this project, and it will not be limited to the uh, place um, or the role of Black Americans, um, but there are many communities of Americans um, still to be fully woven into our understanding of the past and, frankly, our capacity um, as a country into the future.
0: Martha Jones, she's one of the contributors to the 1619 Project, the book based on the project created by Nicole Hannah-Jones and the New York Times Magazine. Martha, thank you for talking with us today.
3: Thank you so much, John.
0: That's it for today's Living in the USA. Our sound editors are Will Broughton and Alan Minsky. Our social media maven is Renee Reynolds. KPFK's programming traffic director is Matt Perez. Thanks as always to Ry Cooter for our theme music Mambo Sinuendo.